0: Show for men and the people who love them, where we discuss how men can embrace and understand the healthiest versions of themselves. I am your host, Dr. Charles Corfu. Yesterday, I took my youngest godson to his first day of school. He is my heart six years old, stocky, strong, smart, full of energy, and wanting to assert his independence. He said to his mother and me, I want to go inside by myself today. We said, No, today we do this together. There is always this pomp and circumstance that correlates with the first and last day of school. But what accompanies most days is the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. As we recited it, those words stuck in me like daggers, especially the last words, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. The events in Charlottesville and even here in our beloved New Orleans over the last couple months only illuminated a divided, oppressive, and unjust nation. I ache to pull the daggers out of my pierced skin and wake up to a society filled with love, not hate. However, the fallen won't have that opportunity to pull those daggers out. A roll call of those names would take the entire hour. My godson was excited to be at school that day. He played with his friends, put his arms around them as they took pictures. What stood out as the boys of various races and ethnicities meanders together as was at no point did I see them the same hatred portrayed in American cities across the country. I saw love. I saw smiles. I saw enjoyment. It is because of them that I continue to hope for a better place. It is because of them that I attempt to quell my anger as the montage of images of Confederate flags and the alt-right and tortures that remind me of cross burnings and strange fruit hanging from trees continue to invoke visceral reactions within my body. It is because of them that I continue to work to find the healthiest version of myself so that I can be a beacon for those who need a way out of the emotional toll that the 24-hour news cycle can take on your mind and your soul, so stay healthy my brothers, stay together, find your revolution. Today to help me unpack how men can remain the healthiest versions of ourselves to during the attacks on our being, I am joined by my friend, my esteemed colleague, awesome researcher, professor extraordinaire, Dr. Ashley Howard, professor of history, Loyola University, New Orleans. Dr. Howard's work focuses on the intersection between race, class, and gender and the global history of racial violence. Dr. Howard, please, we welcome you to the What's a Revolution show. Well, thank you so much. I'm delighted
1: to be here. This is going to be great to get to hang out with you for an hour. Oh,
0: my God. Ashley, you know, we've been trying to make sure that we get you on the show with all of the revolutionary work that you've been doing here Not only in the city, but around the world, around the country, particularly with the work that you do. So we ask every guest the one question, the one poignant question that we hope that every person answers each day. What's a revolution?
1: Boy, I I feel like I'm in a whole bunch of revolution right now. The one that I do and I fight every day is to bring knowledge and truth to a bunch of young people at Loyola University. And that's been my great pleasure and my great revolution is really helping them think how they can be global and active world citizens and not just accept what they see Mm -hmm. as the truth and the reality and their forever to push back and to change and to dream.
0: Mm, To push back to change and to dream. And and that's what you've been doing. You know, Ashley, we go way back. We started, you know, I think you were a year after Mm -hmm. me when I got to Loyola and we have developed a wonderful friendship and I truly admire the work that you're doing. But I know your story a little bit, but Tell my listeners, who is Ashley Howard?
1: Well, Ashley Howard is many things at all times at once, I guess. But as a, as an intellectual, as a scholar, and as a, a, trying to be an activist and a world changer, I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, and that was kind of a weird experience because when I went to college in Chicago folks were kind of taken aback, and they said, wait, there's black people in Omaha? It's like, <laughs> of course there's black people. Malcolm X, Preston Love. You know, this is a hub of um, the black American experience. It's not just Harlem. It's not Oakland. It's not Chicago. It's all around. And so that kind of knowledge of myself and an alternative story to blackness really kind of propelled me to think about our history, our shared experience in new ways. What does it actually mean to be black in the Midwest? And this kind of led me to how I began my research topic, which is on the urban rebellions or the riots that occurred in the 1960s. And about 30% of those uprisings, statistically the largest number, took place in the Midwest. Really? Yeah. So while everybody thinks of Watts and uh, Newark, it's really places like Omaha, Des Moines, Cincinnati, Milwaukee, uh, that are experiencing these uprisings. And part of it, you know, and we see this in kind of a curious – parallel today is this Midwestern angst. People white Midwesterners often pat themselves on the back because of their so-called perceived superior race relations, right? right? We're so great. We have no... It's a
0: homey feel.
1: Oh, yeah. We hug. We love each other. Our kids go to school together. Um, But when the rubber hits a road, they can easily ignore the ways that they're systematically and structurally discriminating against black people, whether that be racial covenants, while that be uh, blockbusting, while that be... um, creating political systems where African-Americans have to vote their reps at large as opposed to by war. And so all these things allowed them to have this kind of Janus face, this like two-face duality that they say, we're great, we're so much better than the South, we're so much better than um, bigger cities, but in fact are doing the same kind of racist practices. And that kind of opened my eyes to the ways that black Midwesterners experience their life in a way that doesn't get talked about a lot.
0: Right. So what you're saying is uh don't get fooled for the head fake. That's right. You know, and that seems to be the
1: um that your the, ankles broke that way.
0: <laughs> exactly. Uh, uh the one time baller. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that seems to be the uh mode of operation with our president as he continues to do the head fake. That's right. To keep us out of the the conchi- the consciousness of what's actually going on with his presidency. But let's pull back a little bit. So growing up in the Midwest, what was that like for you understanding? Because what you just said is a very conscious, a very, you know, very thoughtful, you know, um, perspective. But I'm sure that that wasn't always there. What was it like growing up for you?
1: It was curious growing up, in in part because my mother's white, um, but I identify black. And so as a woman who was trying to explain racism to her child, she often just distilled it as bad attitudes. People don't like you because they're not happy with who, them, who they themselves are. And you know, that could be a classist argument, that could be an educational argument, all these types of things. And so it wasn't until I went to college that I could see the bigger picture beyond just what my mother was saying. And it's in, when I got to college is when I understood structures and that it's not just bad attitudes. It's the ways that our children are treated in schools. It's the way that we still have the electoral college. It's the way that bus routes only go into certain neighborhoods. And all of these forms of structural racism are difficult. So in the sense, like looking back at my childhood, it was a happy childhood, but there are certainly instances of racism um, that really stick out in my mind. And I mean, even as an adult, one of the clearest ones is I was back home visiting my folks, and I was running in my parents' neighborhood, and a group of teenage boys drove past me and yelled the N word at me. What? Right. And it's. This is current. This is. Currently, this was maybe five years ago. Wow. And it stopped me in my tracks, and I was like. What the heck? Like I'm a college professor. I have a job. I have a PhD, and those punks, you know, you know, all pimply faced and 17 years old could stop me in my track and make me feel less than. Right. And so that is kind of the way that this insidiousness of this racism can pop up in unexpected places.
0: And what we're what we're actually seeing because we saw a little bit of it when the monuments were coming down. That's right. You know, what bothered me the most is, is that. It becomes a point where it's in the back of your mind. You know it's there, you know. You you know it's that that sleepy unconsciousness that's at some point that it's going to be awakened. And so for me, I love Mid City. You know, Mm -hmm. anybody who who's listened, if you've been to New Orleans. You know, the hustle and bustle is downtown, it is Bourbon Street, it is The Quarter, it is Canal Street, all of those things. But it, but if you want to be more rustic, you want to be a little bit more hippie, you want to, you know, m- a little bit more peaceful, you'll find your way to Mid-City. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll find your way to the bayou. One of my favorite places on Sunday evenings is to sit on the bayou with my dog. But as you know, as, as you were going down Jeff Davis, as we were going through this monumental – uh evisceration, let's put it mm, that way, right, mm. is that you're walking and all of a sudden in your face, in, in your face is this big, huge confederate flag in my city. You know, and some people will say it's not your city because you live in Metairie. It's my city. <laughs> <laughs> I just laid my head in Metairie. Uh, um, but there there it is. There, There's that confederate flag waving. You know, And then there's this gentleman sitting in a chair very confidently carrying an an assault rifle. That's right. An assault rifle, right? So for me, an assault rifle and a Confederate flag and this visceral reaction like this is my peace. Right. This is my peaceful place. And as you said, it can easily be taken away from you from this privilege to be able to bring your racism to my
1: Absolutely. And, you know, and this is something that I hadn't thought about until this moment. So I I did my grad work and my undergrad in Chicago, which is a metropolitan area and, you know, fairly racially diverse. And I would go to protests and never even think twice about it. And down here, shortly after Trump was um, inaugurated, they would have regular protests outside of Cassidy's office. And my friend and I went there. He is also a person of color. And um, we were walking back and some guy swerved and, like, to fake out, like, he was going to hit us. And at the time, we're like, man, that's totally messed up. But, you know, he was he was a coward. You know, he was, right. you know, just trying to mess with us. But then, you know, flash forward six months later, someone does that exact, exact same, same thing, thing, and someone's dead, and 19 people are injured. Um, and so, again, you you take for granted that we are living in this, the society where people have just basic decency, and we can disagree, but I think for people of color and other people on the margins, there are these subtle and constant reminders that, yes, your life is seemed as less than.
0: Is less than. Is seen as less, less than. That is so poignant. Let's go back one more second to your childhood, and you talked about your mother. Mm. Uh, you talked about your mother. Your father is African American. What was it like for him being a black man in the Midwest? going through all the things that you talked about in a in an interracial relationship and having a biracial child.
1: Yeah, I mean and I think it's particularly hard. One thing that I I love my I mean I love my father for any number of reasons except for when he, you know, crashes my house for Jazz Fest every year <laughs> and I have a house guest for 10 week or for 10 days. Right. Um but he always instilled a sense of pride in us and that blackness was not something to be embarrassed about, not something to hide, but to celebrate and to laud. And so I was always encouraged to read. I was always encouraged to pursue things. And there was a, a particularly contentious moment in my household around the miniseries, The Roots. You know, Roots, right. not The Roots, the band, <laughs> but Roots. Right. Um, or as I grew up saying, Roots.
0: Roots. <laughs> roots. And you know we say it here in That's New right. Orleans. That's <laughs>
1: right. Um, and, and my mother was concerned because she didn't want me to see that violence and the hardship and the pain uh, that people that would have been me 200 years ago were going through, but my father insisted because he said, no, this is her history, this is how she knows, and she needs to know that in spite all of this, we have persevered, we have excelled, we have dreamed and created and laughed and sang and created families, uh, and that is the struggle just as much as our moments of triumph,
0: right, right, and so that's very. I remember my father sitting me down, and we had <laughs> we didn't have the biggest TV. We didn't have that 60 inch flat screen TV <laughs> back then. We actually had a very, very probably I don't even know if it was 13 inches. It was not mm-hmm. a it was not a big TV, and so I, but I remember as Roots came on and watching it with my father, sitting in his office and watching, it. and not not really wanting to watch, but he made sure, mm-hmm. and, and, and that was a part of it. My father and I talk about him uh, very intimately here on the show. Civil rights activist himself, uh, teacher of the Norfolk Seventeen, first African American president of the Virginia Education Association. So, in the midst of massive resistance, all of these things. So he always wanted to make sure that I was, I, I was educated
2: mm-hmm.
0: about the movement that yes. he he had been he had been a part of. Born in 1929 in the South, right? My mother was born in North Carolina. My grandmother, interesting interestingly enough. I always say this that she never actually wanted me to get too dark. She was a, a oh. beautiful dark-skinned woman, but never wanted me to get too dark because she knew of the experiences of racism and discrimination that she experienced not only from white people but from black folks because of her dark skin. Right. And she would say, "Chucky, though, no, don't stay out, don't stay out in the sun too long because I don't want to get you. I don't want you to get too dark, even though I love the sun." Um, But my my father always made sure that I was in the midst of something that was going to educate me about my
1: blackness. Yes.
0: You know because he knew the struggles. Yes. That we were going to. So it's very interesting that Roots actually galvanizes families.
1: Yes, it does. And 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 I think you know I had like a 365 days of blackness Mm -hmm. and you know going to various plays and listening to music and. And I, and I joke that some of my earliest exposures to blackness was read through my father's masculine lens, right? So, like hanging outside the barbershop, going to the play, uh, to the park where people were playing dominoes. And so, yeah, it's important.
0: Right. You're listening to the What's Your Revolution show. I'm your host, Dr. Charles Corpru, sitting here with my great, great friend, colleague, awesome scholar, professor, Dr. Ashley Howard. Uh, professor of History at Loyola University in New Orleans, and we sit and have a great discussion just really about our fathers ab- uh, about black history, what it 's like to grow up in the Midwest, being in a biracial relationship, and how roots actually galvanizes us you know it, it brings you together, it allows you to see your history and in saying that, looking at what 's going on it 's two thousand and seventeen, Ashley. Yeah, we we were professors at Loyola University, which used to be a which is still a predominantly white university. You know, we can go wherever we want to go. Yeah, right. Particularly, I mean, there's not a colored and white water fountain that we have to. You know, there still are very segregated schools. There are still (laughs) schools under uh, under court orders to desegregate their schools. Yes, but theoretically, this what we're seeing in our country right now. Should not be happening. Yeah. What's, what's going on, Ashley, from, your, from a historical perspective? What are you seeing?
1: So there is a wonderful scholar um, in the 1920s and 1930s by the name of Oliver C. Cox. And he came up with what he calls the lynching cycle. Mm. And it's these various steps that go along, and it culminates in a lynching. And so basically, you know, the myth of lynching is that are black brute rapists, right? Most lynchings that took place, it was because of economic competition or perceived slight of social protocols, not because of some attack. And so when these black men, most typically, would go against the established protocols of a racist society, there would be a lynching, which would... Keep those people in check,
2: right. and
1: then things would go back to normal, and there would always be statements from the people in power saying, "This is not us. This is not how we see our community." And then that cycle goes again.
0: Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. What? This was in the twenties and thirties. This
1: is in the twenties and thirties.
0: This was almost a hundred years ago. That's so, right. So you're saying that <laughs> what the <laughs> something would happen?
1: Something. Uh, uh,
0: people in leadership would say, "This is not us. This is not who we are." This
1: is a horrible mistake.
0: This is a horrible mistake. Go back to regular way of business. That's right. And then something just to keep the people. A hundred yeah. years ago. A
1: hundred years ago. And I think a, a classic example of this is in my own hometown of Omaha. Uh, a man by the name of Will Brown was lynched in September of 1919. And this, there was a lot of political turmoil. There was a lot of yellow journalism, you know, pointing the finger at black men uh, for being the ruiners of Omaha society. And they killed um, and maimed. Will Brown, they tried to string up the mayor, and significantly um, injured him. And then the very next day, there was an editorial in the newspaper... Uh, that later won a Pulitzer Prize, calling this Omaha's darkest day. What? Even though there had been a series of other lynchings from the exact other same place. Other dark days. Uh-huh, other dark days that people just kind of ignore that they happen. And so this is a thing that we forget about this long history of racist violence because all the right people come out and say, oh, this is a shame. Oh, this is not who we are and speak out against it. And then it's back to business as usual until there's another flashpoint, which makes those so-called responsible parties have to say something again.
0: Right. So what we're seeing – so the question that comes to my mind is that because for eight years we have this leader, this leader, right? Right. I'm going to say that again. We have this leader in the office who is trying to galvanize a country. Yes. Who is saying that we need to be equitable and just and fair and loving – Yes. Right? And inclusive. So what you're saying is that what we're seeing now is the clapback.
1: Oh, yes. Or as my guy Larry Wilmer calls it, the blacklash.
0: The blacklash.
1: The blacklash. This is what we reap from sowing eight years of a black president with a mind towards social justice. This is this rolling back of the progressive. And, you know, while he was great, he certainly wasn't.
2: He wasn't perfect. perfect. But this
1: progressive agenda that he did try to pursue, this is that rolling back. We see it very clearly.
0: So this is is very troubling, Um, especially since you put it into a historical context that this is similar behavior that's been going on for centuries.
1: Yes, yes. And I mean, and this is what I think is so curious when we have these discussions of the monuments, of Confederate monuments. It's not like Confederate monuments were being erected in 1875, you know, 10 years after the Civil War. No. No, it's 1890 when there's fears of nativism and immigrants and the beginnings of Jim Crow's. It's in the 1950s when we see a cropping up for civil rights by African Americans. So these monuments are symbolic, and they're to remind people stay in your place. Stay.
0: In your place. And now, again, because we're taking Confederate monuments, down. Whoa. You have gotten out of place. Right. Right. Wow. Ashley, you are dropping knowledge today. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking knowledge with Dr. Howard. Um, So let me ask you this question. So let's move the conversation just a little bit. Your work investigates the intersections of race, gender, and class during racial uprisings during the 1960s. So... Knowing all of those things, all right, and you're faced with oppression and discrimination and prejudice daily, how did people from a historical perspective cope with that? Because you've got to be able to remain healthy and be the healthiest versions of yourself because knowing the constraints that are still in place, even though you're trying to push an uprising that is going to give you civil rights, does your research show you how people actually coped effectively? doing these uprisings?
1: In some senses. You know, black people have always sought refuge in black institutions, whether that be fraternities and sororities, the black church, black family, black clubs, all these places. So that has always been a safe space. But because of I guess somehow the shame, even though it should not be a shameful thing, of being racially discriminated against, oftentimes those innermost feelings are something that people keep so very deep. Right. And so if you read enough of these biographies, say, from the civil rights movement, um, where so many people have written down their stories, something that you see with black male civil rights leader is rage, is indignation, is frustration. But rarely do we see those moments of sadness, of fear, of doubt because they don't want to be perceived as weak in a culture, in a society where they're already read that way.
2: Right, right.
1: And so there are these moments where you see people who are... They express fear when there is bodily harm imminent to them. I think of Lawrence Giot, who was in a... Um, prison in Sunflower County, Mississippi, and they beat him to a pulp, they try to burn his penis, all of these things. Like, he spoke very candidly um, about his terror there, right? But that was something that was particularly heinous. But to to talk about the fear of driving home or your family being in danger or your car getting bombed out, those types of things are often suppressed to keep that face,
0: right, right, and th- and that's the interesting thing. When you're the leader of a movement, you have to actually portray that. that you have to actually portray yourself as fearless. That's right. You think about. I, re- I remember watching uh, Selma, mm-hmm. uh, as Dr. King walked into uh, a, a voter registration and was literally punched. I mean,
2: <laughs> right, <laughs> literally, right.
0: Literally, You have you have to be fearless. Yeah. And so I guess what we're saying, not even – there's no guess to it, is that during this time, part of this is that you've got to be able to be fearless. You've got to be revolutionary in mindset to go out every day and fight this.
1: Yes, and to know that the cost and that, that freedom isn't free, as so many people have been freedom saying lately, free. right? But that that there's great sacrifice that comes with this. And and I think perhaps the kind of best example of people being burned out in the movement occurred after the Freedom Summer of 1964. So this is when young, mostly college activists, part of the Student Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, got together, went down to Mississippi to, to register people to vote. Lots of people were injured, some critically. Three of their colleagues were killed. Um, they go to Atlantic City to be seated at the Democratic National Convention. They are, not, they are not allowed a seat at the table. Fannie Lou Hamer gives a testimony of her sexual abuse that occurred at the same mm-hmm. time that Giat was beaten in the prison. LBJ cuts into her speech because it was seen as so inflammatory that he couldn't let it be aired nationally any longer, right? So that silencing is a form of violence as wow. well. And they were so disappointed afterwards. So Harry Belafonte paid for all of them to go to Africa, to Senegambia, to Ghana, to talk with Toure, to talk with um, Kwame Nkrumah, and to basically refill their spirit and to kind of revel in this moment of a post-independence, Africa and to fill you know their cups with hope and with belief and to again gather around people who look like them who mm. struggled and to build themselves up because they had that same shared experience right. they weren't in isolation and I think that's one of the key things that we all need to do in this moment
0: right and uh, you're you're preaching you're preaching here today and the thing about it is is that we cannot only sit and talk about the oppression we can only we cannot sit and talk about the oppression we have to be a, we have to be able to sit and talk about other things love
1: yes yes
0: because the impetus for this show today is I was riding my bike the other day
2: mm-hmm.
0: you know and had been watching the night before all of the things that had been going on i mean seeing you know seeing the images reading you know, and, and the one thing about the 24 hour news cycle and Instagram and Facebook and all of the things we get flush with information. And depending on, you know, and I love the algorithms, mm. right? That the internet can provide you based on what you're viewing. And so your feed will look a certain way.
2: That's right.
0: Right. And my feed began to look a certain way. And each article and each time, it was something that was was inflaming me because I was seeing the oppression of my, I, I was seeing the car ramming. I mean, how many times did I watch that? Right. You know, and then to see that young lady's face, mm. you know, and, and as we talked last night, to that one image that sticks out is this, brother who's up in the air
1: sneakers up
0: yeah up and up in the air and then to see the vitriol of hate you know there's one dude he's like we will kill them all so i'm riding my bike i'm trying to and this dude rides past me well he's trying to ride past me but as i'm about to speed up he wants to get by he says on your left but i never hear him so as i'm about to speed up then i see him and so when he rides by he just shakes his head right and at that moment, and everybody that knows me, I'm a, I'm a peaceful dude. You're
1: a cool character.
0: I, I, I am peaceful. I am cool. But there's a there's a rage inside of me that that, that is there every day, e- every day. But I, I but I quell that because I know that I don't have the privilege. I do not have the privilege. But I went off. I followed him. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Rachel. Rachel is here. And I went off. I went, and I just let it go, and then all of a sudden, in the middle of my my tirade to him, I caught myself. I picked up my bike, and I got to my car. That's right. (laughs) I got to my car because I realized at this moment in time, this could go left quick.
1: And this is what Trevor Noah said last week on his show, is that we can never forget our training. Mm. To forget our training is fatal. You know, police officers—they can forget their training. They can accidentally pull their gun. They can do tase somebody. But we can never forget our training. Mm-mm. And you know, to, you evoke something when you talked about rage. I think of Baldwin, James Baldwin, saying, "To be black and conscious in America is to be in a constant state of rage."
0: A constant state of rage. And that's and that's where I was. I had to go home. I had to cool down. I had to I had to remember. Like 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 you said, I had to remember my training and 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 we have to remember as a people what our training is so that we can continue to live and thrive and flourish you know as we go to break i want you all to think about this man what's going on in your mind what's going on in your hearts how do we cope with this how do we come together give us a call 504-260-9265 504-260-9265 we'll see you after the break fight the power
3: what we need, hey! Our freedom of speech this freedom of death. We got to fight the
2: power that beat. Fight the power. 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 We got to fight the power that that beat. the to
3: Let's get down to business, mental sub defense fitness. Don't let the show. You got the phone what you know. To make everybody see. In order to fight the power, can't be. Fight the power. Fight the power. Fight the power.
1: There's freedom at Liberty
2: Bank.
4: At Liberty Bank, you can now open a checking account online and gain immediate access to our many services. It's easy for you to go and keep track of your account at www.libertybank.net. You can even apply for loans or services on the go. Banking at Liberty, now 24 hours a day, 7 days a week at www.libertybank.net. Bank at Liberty, there's freedom here. And don't forget to use promo code WBOK. Aetna
3: goes with Medicaid like summer and sunshine, like Friday night lights and football. But did you know that Aetna Better Health of Louisiana offers a variety of services to keep your family healthy? Our Child Well Visit Program features adolescent preventative care, annual doctor's visits, immunizations, and more. Open enrollment is June 30th through August 30th, So if you're eligible for Medicaid, Aetna Better Health of Louisiana is here for you. For more information and to choose Aetna Better Health of Louisiana, call Healthy Louisiana today at 1-855-229-6848. That's 1-855-229-6848. Or visit myplan.healthy.la.gov. In Whole Water News, the city of New Orleans hasn't been the same since Pastor Patton started to expose the truth about alkaline oxygenated water. My job is to inform you of the new things that are happening around the world pertaining to your health. How do you plead, Your Honor? I plead guilty. But not only water for your life, but water for your sustainability. your body is acidic, listen closely. That is where cancer diabetes. Testimony after testimony of people drinking alkaline oxygenated water and feeling and looking and living better.
4: Pastor David Pontan, you have been charged with three counts of
3: exposing the truth about alkaline ionized microclustered oxygenated water. How do you plead? Your honor, I plead guilty. This court accepts your plea of guilty and in accordance this court finds you guilty on all three counts. What will happen to Pastor Patan as more and more people are exposed to the truth about this water? We will have to wait and see what the judge will say next. How do you plead? Your Honor, I plead guilty. But until then, get your hands on alkaline oxygenated water by calling 504-701-4711. And try it for yourself. We will keep you informed on alkaline oxygenated water as things develop. How do you plead? Your Honor, I plead guilty. Where you at, New Orleans? This is Paul Boyer, and I'm back on WBOK with Showtime in the Afternoon. Come talk with me every Friday, 3 p.m. to 4 p.m. Showtime in the Afternoon. I'm Paul Boyer, and I'm back. WBOK New Orleans, your community station.
0: Welcome back, everybody. listening to the What's Your Revolution show on WBOK 1230 AM. Sitting here with uh, the woman, <laughs> wonder woman, superwoman, super researcher, professor, uh, esteemed historian, doing her thing at Loyola University, New Orleans, Dr. Ashley Howard. Doc, doc, doc.
1: What's <laughs> up, man? <laughs> you,
0: you have been dropping knowledge on the the, the history behind the uprisings and what people have been going through. So we're going to open this up to the callers to see what's going on with people. How are they feeling? You know, what type of emotions are seeing these images invoking in them? You know, so give us a call 504-260-9265, 504-260-9265. What have you heard from your friends and colleagues about their emotions? You know, having, you know, discussions with them, particularly, you know, in our circle. What, yeah. What, is, what, what kind of emotions are, are being evoked by seeing these images and on a constant reel?
1: I mean, I, people are concerned because this isn't something that's abstract for them. They are people of color. They love people of color. They teach people of color. And this feels very real and very present and – I think we're all very civically minded, and we believe that our careers are not just a calling to teach, but also to do and to go out and to talk about it. And we wonder if our vocalness is actually now putting us in jeopardy, putting our lives in jeopardy.
0: Right. That That is an interesting thing, is that the the way that social media has its way, and, and I'm going to bring up an experience that we actually had when we were at Loyola, when we actually – put one of our colleagues on notice for his comments. Yes. And you remember the vitriol email. I mean, we got emails for months.
1: That's right.
0: From his cronies, you know, I mean, mean mean-spirited emails because we called him out about being racist. Right. And so as you think about this, you know, you want to be fearless, you want to be revolutionary, but over time, email after email, I, I got to a point where... I, I just, I just batch deleted them. Mm-hmm. They, I mean, I never opened them, and so it, it was almost like you're, you're wasting your time. You're right. But I remember that first couple of emails from them, and we were called pygmies. Do yes. you remember that? Yes.
1: Yes. Intellectual pygmies.
0: I, intellectual pygmies. My and,
1: personal favorite comment was. It's easy to be against slavery in, I think, I don't know, 2013, 2014. Where would you have been in 1863? And I thought to myself, in the fields. That's where I would have been. <laughs> I would have definitely bet against slavery. Right. Um, you know, and, yeah, it's, it's strange. And, and I think in the past three years, there's been some very high-profile cases of particularly black academics who have been censured, who have had threats, who have lost jobs because of what they've said. And I think that's a, a real threat, um, to us.
0: And then you have to think about that as an academic. You know, how do I, particularly if you don't have tenure, yes. you know, how do I then still, e- you know, emote and evoke uh, and revolutionize yes. my students and my thoughts and my thinking and then push it out? Yes. Because I think that as an academic, that's your job.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: Your job is to think and to put out information to create thought. Right. And you should not be hampered. Particularly if it's from a social justice perspective when it's not saying that one side is better than the other right but it is illuminating a historical perspective or presenting facts
1: yes, and part of you know the political I guess agenda or the intellectual responsibility of being a historian of African American history is to challenge this triumphalist American narrative that we came here and we fought and then we won the revolutionary and we 've just been on a trend to greatness ever since that part of what black history does is you know pump the brakes. What about this moment? What about this moment? you know and really challenging how we see of America and how we see inclusivity and calling this great country out on its BS right. when needed.
0: Right. And, and 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 I think that's what we've been doing. And so you think about the empowerment that our current president and who who's who he who he is actually empowering yes. but not condemning. Yes. But you think about our previous president and who he empowered. Yes. Yes. It it, it was an amazing time to see this cavalier Masculinity. Yes. Walk into the White House. Yes. And say, I want to be the president for all. And I want you to hear this. And to say, when, when Trayvon Martin and Tamir Rice were killed, this could have been me. Yes. For the great, thereby for the grace of God, it could have been me. It, it could have been me. You know, and, and to think about, to think, to think about good. I've got no sound. Hello? There we go. There we go. There we go. We 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 apologize for the uh, the spaceship coming down and landing on the radio, <laughs> <laughs> landing on the radio show. You know, I apologize for the the one dead spot here in the show. But as I was saying, you know, just thinking about that that if it like he said, if not by not for the grace of God, there go me.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, or that that could have been my son.
1: Right. I mean, that is an incredible, powerful statement, and I think that our leaders must have empathy. And and even, you know, with Obama, he could very clearly see himself or someone he loves in Trayvon Martin. Right. But what does it also mean to have empathy with trans people, to have empathy with undocumented people? Migrant workers, what Mm. does it mean to understand your own privilege and to be an advocate for those who may not have that privilege?
0: No, no doubt. And and that's the work that my consulting firm does, is actually going out and working with these institutions, getting the people in power to think about their own privilege Mm -hmm. and how it then impacts how they govern, how they lead, how they promote policy programming and practice that impacts Not only the constituents that come to them, but the people that work for them. Right. You know?
1: And I think there's been some really great. Um, conversations, particularly given that the person who died was a white woman.
2: Right.
0: And
1: that very, really much called up to me Viola Luzzo, who was a civil rights, a white woman, a mother from Michigan, who lost her life. And, and James Ch- um, Cheney, he was a black man, but Michael Schwerner and Andrew Goodwin. And so what does it mean to be a part of the struggle? Like, what does it mean to put your money where your mouth is? Right. And right. something that's been going around a lot is not just being an ally, but accomplice. And so making sure that your investment in that movement has just as much risk as the people who cannot escape it.
0: Ashley, you're killing them today. You, you, you're killing them today. <laughs> the, and the, because that's the term that we talk about. We want people to be an ally. We said ally. But accomplice is, is a different thing. It's
2: a completely different I, thing. I,
0: I'm, I'm an ally. That means I can sit on the sideline when things get tough. That's right. I can, right. I can sit on the side like this is not – and sometimes – now, don't get me wrong. Sometimes we actually just want you to be an ally.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: So we have to, you have to understand that. But there are other times I want you to be in the fight with me. That's right. You know. And the fortunate thing, and my good friends uh, back at Green Run High School, I always talk about my beloved high school, had a conversation with uh, Gerda Gall Bledsoe. We've been knowing each other since the first grade. Gerda, <laughs> if you're watching, shout out to you. Um, but we talked about how we grew up in a very diverse – neighborhood, a very diverse school. I mean, even from first grade, we were in class together with white and black and Jewish and a a variety of people. This went on from elementary school to junior high school to the Mecca. That's right, if my Green Run folks are listening, to the Mecca of Green Run High School in the late 80s and 90s, late 80s, early 90s. It taught us a worldview that that is unparalleled. It shaped my worldview. I never liked being in spaces where it's just one group of people. Mm All right. Yeah. I always want to be in a space where it's very diverse, where it's very loving, where I can learn more. But we've got to understand that's how that's who we are as a country. Yes. But some people feel like, you know what, I need to be segregated over here, you need to do your thing. There's all these stereotypes and bias about what you are and what you're not.
1: Right. And and that that for me is what's so troubling about, you know, some of this white nationalist sentiment is the idea that America has ever been an all-homogeneous space, that it's always been just white or it's just been one type of group of people. This has always been a mixed place. And part of the thing that makes this country so unique and so special is its melange of different people.
0: (laughs) Say, say that big word again. Mélange uh, is a mix. A mix of people. <laughs> the interesting thing, and, and, and let's let's talk about this for one second. And again, please let us know how these events are impacting you and how you're coping. Five zero four two six zero nine two six five. Five zero four two six zero nine two six five. I think about the Colin Kaepernick piece, you know, and you you think about this, and can you put can you put this in historical perspective for us, you know, uh, be, because the brother is saying. That I'm not going to stand up, even though he has now pulled that back because he mm-hmm. didn't have a job, possibly, <laughs> but doing doing his stance last year, yeah you know can you put that into historical perspective for people who may not know what this represents
1: well this is one of my favorite areas and you know the intersection of race and sports is fascinating and if you get uh, a chance there's a great author uh, by the name of Dave Zarin he wrote Welcome to the Terror Dome say my name full he he does this kind of critical analysis but African-Americans have always had a weird space in sports, right? It's our entertainment. They can trot us out. I think Jesse Owens. I think Jackie Robinson. But when they use that very venue as a place of resistance, they have terrible consequences. I think of Juan Carlos and Tommy um, Smith from the 1968 Mexican Olympics. I think of Muhammad Ali being incarcerated for his resistance. And so, yes, if people – speak out and get out of that line, there are always repercussions.
0: Right. You're listening to the What's Your Revolution Show. This is your host, Dr. Charles Cooper. I'm here with my good friend Doctor Ashley Howard, having a great conversation about finding our healthiest version of ourselves in the midst of resistance. And I think that's the best way we can say it. In the midst of resistance and, and how the historical perspectives lead us to opportunities to cope well. Yes. And to foster and continue our personal and global revolutions and as we talk about my brother colin it's interesting because i wrote a piece last year and i i thought this piece was going to die (laughs) i i I thought this i thought this piece was going to die um i wrote about his standing his his kneeling and i asked this question what if it was breeze what if it was brady what if it was rogers what if it was manning
2: right
0: would he be would they be eviscerated like he has been, right? It was interesting because I was at uh, the National Association of Black Journalists, National Association of Black Journalists Convention, and went to the sports task force. And one of the interesting comments that came out of this was that if Colin you – know, the perception that if, if Colin was actually really good, he could still have a job. Ah. What do you think about that? What do you think about that
1: comment? Uh, th- that's tough. That's tough because I think of the backlash that when LeBron James and Dwayne Wade wore their hoodies up um in support of um justice for Trayvon Martin you know that got backlash but like you said they got careers they're they're big power stars um and those repercussions were very minimal and there have been people who have spoken out um but just not as forcefully as him but perhaps even the fact that he had a lower profile enabled him to do that
0: right right we're gonna go to line two line two brother Benjamin how you doing today
1: I'm well.
0: How about yourself? I'm doing well. Doing well. Thank you for calling this show, man. I appreciate it. Oh,
4: yeah.
0: Anytime. No doubt. We're sitting here having a, a discussion about um, the movements that are going on, particularly from uh, a Black Lives Matters movement, um, versus, conversely to what we're seeing on the alt-right, uh, the white nationalists, the white supremacists. And we're trying to figure out in this movement, how do we continue to find the healthiest versions of ourselves how do we how do we cope with seeing these images of hate uh and discrimination and racism on a daily basis actually on a every second basis if you if you choose to how do we cope with these things brother
4: right this is a I think this is one of the hardest things to deal with uh, because, you know, it, it, this is just everywhere. So when we talk about the notion of white supremacy, it's, it's embedded in, in culture for us. So when we turn on TV, just uh, as opposed to how we're uh, depicted um, on TV as African-Americans. So, you know, normally uh, I, I say that you always have to find your escape, but your escape now <laughs> could be tainted, right? Um, I, uh, I always uh, prefer to... If, if I see negative images, I want to find these positive images to balance it out. But I don't think that that's a solution uh, to the matter, right? I think that we have to um, kind of dig in and, and, really, and really start this fight. Uh, this is something that I didn't think that, uh, you know, it, it, was a clan, it, was, it was a Ku Klux Klan rally <laughs> in Charlottesville. Like, I didn't think that that was something that I was going to see during my time. Um I, I, I really, I really didn't Put it I into perspective, my, there was
0: a Ku Klux Klan rally with men without sheets. Exactly. <laughs> without sheets. Without, sheet. without sheets and tiki torches.
4: The the first time the first time I I heard about the Klan or, or anything, I remember my mother sat me down as a young child and made me watch Rosewood. Y'all remember that movie? Uh, yeah, I
0: remember that movie.
4: with Zing Rains, right, right? exactly. And, uh, and and you know the guys were going in the uh, the seats of their car pulling out uh uh, hoods and all that stuff. Um, and, you know, these, these people are like the, the sheriffsmen, the neighbors, the store owners. Um, and it's kind of indicative to how it is right now.
0: The, um, that's the interesting thing. And so you, as we try to cope with this, you begin to question. You begin, as uh, Professor Howard just said, is that we, we're looking for allies. We're looking for accomplices. But in the back of our mind, maybe not even the back of our mind anymore, because, like forefront. I said, in the forefront of our minds, we're wondering:
2: right.
0: Are you one of those people who wants to hold that tiki torch? Mm-hmm.
4: Right. So, so how do we know? Are, are we are we checking your Target receipts or Walmart receipts? Um, <laughs> right. you know, like, like like what are we doing? Have you bought a tiki torch lately? That like is that is that a question on um, our uh, ally application?
2: Right. Right. Um.
4: So so how how do we vet these potential allies? Um. <laughs> And in, in the, the fight for justice. Now, I, I do think that we have, we have some, some strong allies within our own community, but we're going to have to look outside of our community to get this stuff done. I think that's just the way, the way it is. Um, I've been reading uh, the Martin Luther King book, Where Do We Go From Here? Mm-hmm. Um, Chaos, Our Community, which right. is a great read. So if you haven't read it, I, I suggest everybody read it. Um, and that's, uh, you know, he talks about having allies outside of just the African-American community, and that's, and that's what makes these movements go around and work. Um, but, but we have to find a way to, to solicit and acquire the, the, the allies that we need in order to move this, uh, move this fight forward.
0: Right. Professor Howard also mentioned you know, one of the things in, in helping men cope, and, and the show really is about men and the people who love them, right. helping, helping men find and embrace the healthiest versions of themselves, is that we have to congregate together you know, in, yes. in, in, in space. What has to happen in those spaces? What, what are we talking about? What are we doing?
4: So, so I'm, I'm going to tell you this. It's funny because I'm, I'm about to go to one of those spaces right now with a, some freshmen on campus at Dillard. Um, so so, so we're, we're, we're about to do the same thing that we're talking about. Um, and honestly, I think just after these events, you want to be able to allow uh, the men a space to get it out. So we have, to, we have to get out our raw feelings and raw emotions, right? And it has to be a just, just a session of that at first. But then we have to follow that up with, okay, so these are our feelings, these are our emotions. Now what can we do? So let's strategize and let's make a plan of action to see how we can cope with this on a day-to-day basis. Like what can we do within our community or within our, within our household? to make sure that we're feeding ourselves these positive images and doing something uh, to progress towards the fight for justice instead of just sitting there stationary.
2: Right,
0: right, and, and that's key. How do you open up the vulnerable space? Because, as we said, to be black in this country is to be in a state of con- constant and continued rage. And, right. so, and, and, and And we know as African-American men and men of color – the experiences of racism, discrimination, and, and I don't saying say anything about our sisters because we know that it, it becomes heightened because of race, gender, right, for them. Right. But that, that consistent rage because they're the ones who have to be there for us, that consistent rage, how do we get that out in a vulnerable space? Because, you know, it's angry. I, I, I was angry the other day. I mean literally Angry. How you know, in that safe I, I space myself, do I get it out? I
4: found myself uh, talking to my, talking to some of my coworkers, and, like, I, I, it was just at a heightened level, um, a level that wasn't, you know, normally becoming of me. Uh, but, you know, you deal with all these things um, outside of work, and you have no choice but to almost bring them to work, right? Mm. Uh, so I think I'm, I'm a big proponent of therapy, right? I'm a big proponent of therapy, group counseling, stuff like that, to uh, create that kind of safe environment. I mean, because what it is is we want to be able to feel vulnerable, When we're discussing our opinions because we might not have all the facts um we might not have all the figures but we do have a feeling inside of us and that feeling is valid and i think that we have to talk to these young brothers and let them know that we have valid feelings and it's okay to express them
1: And I agree, and I think that that being comfortable with your vulnerability and sharing it, right, because then it feels less alienating. It feels Mm -hmm. less that this is a me problem, and really it's a them problem. They are putting that stuff on all of us, and we're all going through this. This isn't my own personal shortcoming.
0: Yes. Brother Benjamin, I appreciate you. we got got to wrap up uh, in a few minutes, so I appreciate you giving us a call and, and, and dropping the knowledge. Could you let our listeners know your full credentials so they know who the, who they've been listening to, brother?
4: Uh, so I'm a professor at Dillard University, and I run the uh, Black Male Initiative at Dillard University. Um, and my official title is I'm the Assistant Director of the Academic Center for Excellence, so if anybody needs to find me or get a hold of me, I'm on Twitter, uh, Mr. Jeff underscore myDU, and they can tweet me, holler at me. Tell me some thoughts
2: and ideas. Man,
0: brother, I appreciate you. Look, hey, look, I'm going to be coming for you. We're always, we always need somebody who's going to drop that knowledge here on the show, man. So I definitely appreciate everything today.
4: Hey, when you need me, call me.
0: All right, brother. Take care. Right. They take Thank care, you. brother. Sister Howard.
1: <laughs> brother Corporal. <laughs> I,
0: I appreciate you. I appreciate you. Spending time with me, it, it is an honor to sit in the space with you, to hear the uh, of your great work And actually put this in context for us a, a historical context and actually a current context Because we as men we need to understand That Our feelings and frustrations Are not just today We, we carry those of our oppressors That's all right? Right. We, we care of the oppressed we, It comes down with us And that, that anger And that those feelings of sadness All of those things right now that we're seeing Because we get to see those images are there So I appreciate the time I appreciate it. Thank you for coming to the show.
1: My pleasure. And I I look forward to a time in our collective liberation. We can talk about shoes and music. Oh, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. No doubt. No doubt. I want to end the show um, this way. I would not be Dr. Corperew. I would not be in this space if it was not for Avery DeVell Mitchell. Avery was my... um, Avery was my research assistant when I was finishing my dissertation and then became my research assistant when I became a professor at Loyola. Um, we spent a lot of time together unpacking the research, unpacking all of those uh, qualitative notes, talking, you know, about life, talking about everything, writing a dissertation. It, wouldn't, it wasn't, it was because of him that I was able to finish that, because it, if I didn't have him, if I hadn't have been introduced to him, I don't know, because he, he was my rock. Um, we spent time together. We have numerous publications together. He went on to University of Maryland to get a master's degree. We worked tirelessly to figure out what was going to be the best doctoral school for him. When he applied, he got into seven schools because he was so good. He was so good. He went on to the University of Chapel Hill Uh, to work with Enrique Neblet in his research lab. Avery was my friend. Avery was my confidant. Avery was a budding young star. Avery was killed last night because he was doing the things that he loved. He was an adventurer. He wanted to get out. He wanted to be a part of the world. The facts are still unfolding, but I just want to give you a shout-out, brother, to tell you, that I love you, that your time in my life is has been amazing. And wherever you are, know that you have made a mark on so many people's lives. And I am thankful and I am grateful for you. Rest in peace, brother. In question of your life what's your lover what's your revolution have a great week everyone take care